fools will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. Or to paraphrase uh, the words of uh, Ronald Reagan, Jews are not the solution to our problem. Jews are the problem. And you can see so many Hollywood stars and starlets have had to eat their words when they criticize the Israeli state for the brutal and uh, you know, absolutely merciless treatment they have been doing uh, against the Palestinian people, not just recently uh, concerning Hamas and Gaza and the West Bank, but from the very beginning, from the very moment that the Jews invaded Palestine they have been treating the Palestinians with uh, brutal, unmerciful behavior as if they were subhuman or non-human, which, is, of course, is what their Talmud teaches, that non-Jews are subhuman. So I'm going to be tracing the history of this conflict as set forth by the history of Zionism, the words of Zionists themselves, and none other than Lawrence of Arabia, T.E. Lawrence, who was the uh, British colonel who fought alongside the Arabs, the Palestinian Arabs, in anticipation of liberating these Arabs from the Turkish occupation leading up to World War One, And so the uh, T.E. Lawrence was under the impression, and so were the Arabs, that once the Turks would be ejected from Palestine, from control over Arab territory, that the Arabs would regain their independence, which they had before the Turkish occupation. So, But that was not to be, because the Jews had other ideas, and usually what the Jews want, the Jews get. And so I'll be quoting here from, from Al Jazeera. The Arab Revolt, a war of unintended consequences. The centenary is a good opportunity to reflect on the unintended consequences of the Arab Revolt by James Barr. Well, one of the intended consequences was the liberation of the Arabs from the Turkish occupation, but as it turned out, they got the British mandate instead. And the British mandate was created by the Jews in order so that the uh, Jews would eventually get control over Palestine in their pretense of being Israel. And so in the first link that I put in the chat room at Eurofolk Radio, there's a photograph of T.E. Lawrence riding a camel and uh, his uh, alliance with the Arabs. 100 years ago this week, uh, this is dated 2-16, June 10th, in the middle of World War One. An uprising erupted at the axis of the Islamic world in Mecca. Encouraged by the British, the ruler of the holy city, Sharif Hussein, 
launched a revolt against the Ottoman Turks. The British hoped that Hussein's ancestry and authority, he was a descendant of Muhammad and his phone number was Mecca 1, made him the idea, there had, people had phones in those days, made him the ideal man to disrupt the jihad called by the Ottoman Sultan in 1914. So, of course, the uh, Arabs, also most of them being Muslims as well, there was a internecine conflict between the Turks and Arabs, even though they were both Muslims. To persuade him to help them, British, the British promised him, that is Hussein, and his Arab nationalist supporters independence in the post-war world if they rebelled against the Turks. Okay, here's the promise, folks. This is the promise made to the Arabs by the British regarding their commitment to fight the Turks during uh, and around World War One, And we all know that the British did not keep this promise. The British never really believed that they would have to make good on that offer. So if you, if you don't believe you're going to have to make good on an offer, why make it? And it's no sweat off their chins because they didn't own that property anyway. Neither did the Turks. It belonged to the Arabs who had been living there for centuries. They believed they would not have to make good on that offer, and weeks later, to pacify a different ally, they would promise much the same territory to the French in the infamous Sykes-Picot Agreement. Okay, so we have two conflicting agreements made by the British going on at the same time. The mcmahon Hussein Agreement, which promised the Arabs total control of the Arabian Peninsula after the Turks would be ejected, but they also made an agreement with the French that they would split up Arab territory for themselves. This doesn't even deal with the Balfour Declaration, which is another agreement the British made in their triple dealing against the Palestinians. Next heading here is double dealing. Oblivious to this double dealing, Hussein fired the... Yeah, he trusted the British. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, the German comment about the British politics. The, the, the main export of the British Empire is cant, meaning hypocrisy. The main export of the British Empire is hypocrisy. And the reason for that is because it's been run by Jews since 1694 and recalling... Uh, Luke 12.1, beware of the leaven of Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So any kingdom ruled by Jews will be dealing in hypocrisy constantly. And that's been the truth historically. So, uh, oblivious to this double dealing, Hussein fired the first shot of the rebellion from a window in his palace on June 10th, 1916. I wonder if he hit anything. Okay. When his revolt then quickly fizzled out, the British began arguing among themselves about whether or not to send in troops to support him. In London, British ministers did not want to divert men to a place few of them could locate on a map. In October 1916, an intelligence officer named T.E. Lawrence was sent in to assess the situation. And there's a photograph here of uh, Hussein with T.E. Lawrence standing right behind him on the steps of some, uh, at the peace conference in Paris. This is after the war. His beleaguered chief had correctly calculated 
that a vivid witness report from this highly regarded young officer would tip the argument against intervention, restoring his own credit with the politicians in London. So political expediency fashioned Lawrence's conclusions that Hussein's Bedou tribesmen were natural guerrillas who simply needed more weaponry and money. Personal frustration, he was fed up with his desk job, according to this uh, author, made him add that they might benefit from an advisor. As it happened, Lawrence's advice was good. He went on to mastermind a war of extraordinary fluidity and economy. Quote, This is a war of dervishes against regular troops, Lawrence observed, and we are on the side of the dervishes. Well, sometimes the dervish can uh, bedazzle the opposition. What was a mischievous insight in 1916 has become an unremarkable military orthodoxy a century later. Most recently, U.S. Special Forces have been photographed shoulder-to-shoulder with communist Kurdish fighters in eastern Syria. Yeah, you can't tell uh, your friends from your enemies anymore. Arabs' right of conquest. These American soldiers are operating under exactly the same constraints as Lawrence was in 1916. They are in Syria because there is no appetite to send a larger force, whose very arrival might in any case be counterproductive. And there is another pressure these Americans will face, which Lawrence would have recognized. What Lawrence lacked in materiel, he had compensated for by enthusiastically supporting the Arab nationalist political aims. In particular, he emphasized his expectation that the Arabs' right of conquest would trump the secret deal his own country had cooked up with the French. Now, that's a little too much to expect, isn't it? that the secret deals, secret treaties made by your government would actually not influence an open agreement with your friends? Uh, no, not cha- no chance, no chance there. The danger of this tactic be- became clear only after the Arabs reached Damascus in October 1918, just before the war's end. Having been spurred on by Lawrence to reach the city, which lay inside the zone Britain had also promised to the French. Oh, no, you can't capture French territory, you Arabs. Stay away from there. They naturally expected that the British government would now honor its earlier promise to Hussein. And they believed it. Okay, that's that's what happens when people trust the British Empire, which is, of course, ruled by Jews. And uh, here's a wonderful photograph of Emir Abdullah ibn Ben Hussein of Transjordan, Lord Allenby, and T.E. Lawrence, who attended a military review during the Arab Revolt circa 1917. 1917 is a critical year because that's when the Balfour Declaration was fabricated. A sense of lasting betrayal followed when the British government did not because it valued its alliance with France more highly and reckoned that the financing of oil exploration would be easier if it imposed direct rule in in Iraq, rather. Okay? So, the Arabs felt a lasting sense of betrayal. Understandably so. Riding roughshod over Arab aspirations, Britain and France went ahead and divided the Middle East between themselves, generating deep and lasting Arab anger. Now, you have to also consider the fact that the, the, the 
so-called world government, the League of Nations, created right after World War I by the Jews. This had been a Jewish master plan for actually, since the time of Napoleon, to create a one-world government. And that the World War I created a, a great opportunity for the Jews to do just that. And unfortunately, the Arab people got caught in the middle. They were the ones who got stabbed in the back, in addition to the Germans, who also got stabbed in the back by the Balfour Declaration, because the Balfour Declaration was made to the British government by the Zionists with the quid pro quo that they, the Zionists, would bring America into World War I on behalf of the British. Okay, so there, that's the third deal the British made that uh, you know, stabbed people in the back. Okay, but the Jews had their hand on all three of those, uh, all, the, all three of those deals. Okay, because uh, the Jews you know, wanted, uh, actually they wanted the Arabs to lose, but they didn't want the Turks to win. So the, the, that's why they uh, supported uh, America in World War One. So uh, with the Americans entering World War One the uh, Germans and the Turks were guaranteed to lose. Let's continue. Okay, the British saw the tactics Lawrence had so successfully employed against the Turks turned against themselves, first in Iraq in 1920, and then in Palestine from 1936. Well, it's because the British were supporting the Jews who were stabbing the Palestinians in the back and stabbing the British in the back, because the Jews were committing terrorist atrocities against the Palestinian people and against the British as well, even though the British were the ones who got the Jews their foothold in Palestine. This is the thanks you get when you do the Jews a favor. Quote, Lawrence of Arabia certainly taught the Arabs how to make bombs, one soldier mused after a search for his blown-up comrade yielded just a foot inside a boot. The centenary is a good opportunity to reflect on the unintended consequences of the Arab revolt. Well, what do you expect them to do? They wanted their country back. Certainly the American soldiers fighting alongside the Kurds are in as delicate a position as Lawrence was. Now here again, the Kurds are a uh, an oppressed minority, oppressed by not just the uh, Iraqis, because the Iraqis under Saddam Hussein had launched a war against the Kurds, but the Jews as well, because the Jews do not want the Kurds, which are a Christian uh, people, to have uh, their own independent state in that territory. So here again, every single non-Jewish genome on this planet is being made war against by the international Jew, constantly. Yet, the mass media doesn't say a word about this and always couches these struggles in terms of, well, these groups of Arabs are fighting that group of Arabs and these Muslims are fighting these Christians and blah, blah, blah. Well, who's financing all of this war? Who's financing all this revolution? The the mass media never talks about how these wars are financed and who stands to gain and who's pulling the strings from behind the scenes. So, 
Currently, American and Kurdish interests run parallel. Their immediate objective is the destruction of ISIL, also known as ISIS. Very good. But ISIS is run by the Jews, too. <laughs> okay. But the Kurds' long-held hope of statehood invests this alliance with great symbolism, especially at a time when Syria and Iraq are disintegrating. In the course of dealing with one enemy, the Americans risk making several others, which has been uh, what has happened to our country ever since we uh, we joined the Jews in making war against the Arabs. We've been making one enemy after another. Like Lawrence, the men who we glimpse fighting this clandestine war will also be taking decisions every day loaded with political significance. The Arab revolt provides a 100-year-old reminder that the consequences can be profound. But this is what happens when you make common cause with the Jews. You will get stabbed in the back routinely, and you will never gain any objective for your own country. The Jews will always get their objective because they will assassinate your leaders if they if those leaders stand in their way. That's the that's the basic thrust of the situation. Okay. So now I'm gonna to switch to the second article here, the Balfour Declaration, the basics. And uh this is oh, it's hard to read. What is the uh I can't read the handwriting. Balfour one hundred is the uh website. Balfour100.com. Quote, For World War I era British policymakers, the Balfour Declaration was a matter of national interest. Well, yeah, because the Jews promised to bring the Americans into the war against the Germans. Balanced by a desire to foster a Jewish national home while ensuring Arab civil and religious rights. Now, I guarantee you that the British people had no intention of creating a homeland for the Jews. This was strictly a Jewish idea promoted by Jews within the cabinet of the British government. And, of course, you know, the Rothschilds being the financiers of the British Empire you know, since 1694 would have the major say as to what the British government backs and what it doesn't back. The same is true of the American Revolution. Jews backed the British government against the Americans and caused the American Revolution. It was the Jewish bankers who caused the American Revolution, not the British government. King King uh, George III was just their pawn. So there was no desire. Now the government, the and I would say even only the British cabinet, was interested in providing a homeland for the Jews because they were working hand-in-glove with the Zionists. Certainly the British people had no idea of what was going on, and more than likely the the rank and file of the British Parliament had no idea what was going on either. So this was a secret deal, just as the Sykes-Picot Agreement was a secret deal. The only above-board deal was the deal that Lawrence of Arabia made with the Arabs. That was above board, and the Arabs expected the British to keep their promise, which, of course, never happened. Okay. And then he says, for the Jewish people, it represented the beginning of the end of 2,000 years of statelessness. Okay. That, that period of being vagabonds and, and roaming around the earth uh, since uh, Genesis 3.15. Okay. And, uh, then they can claim to be God's chosen people 
and stake their you know, stake their claim to Palestine well, based on that fraudulent claim that they're God's chosen people, Israel. For its enemies, the Balfour Declaration remains the West's never expiated original sin. It is a huge sin, ladies and gentlemen, a sin that's never talked about. You only will hear about this on alternative radio, on alternative media, and uh, books that have written on subject, which are not ever discussed on mainstream television, ever. Or a polite company, <laughs> for that matter. <laughs> polite company is that which uh, does not talk about the Jews, or if they do talk about the Jews, it's only in whispers. So the article states, quote, Here is where the world stood on Friday morning, November 2nd, 1917. A world war which had begun in the summer of 1914 was still pitting the central powers, including Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire, against the Allies led by France, Britain, and Russia. Only seven months earlier, on April 6th, the United States had abandoned neutrality and entered the fray on the side of the Allies. The first American soldiers were now in France at the front. The world had been torn asunder. Why? Why had it been torn asunder? Because the Zionists, in their master plan of pretending to be Israel, wanted to take over Palestine, that that would be their base of operation by which they control could control certainly the Judeo Christians those Christian uh, Zionists they spent much of the 20th century creating Christian Zionism by you know fomenting uh, a number of Christian Zionist pastors and uh, uh, taking the the seminaries in that direction as well, so that they could gain allies among Christians, which they had never had previously to this planned program of Judaizing Christians in the 20th century. Okay, And so World War I, in order to fulfill this plan, they had to pretend to be God's chosen people, Israel, and then invade Palestine to lay claim to the quote-unquote prophecy that the Jews would return to Palestine. But since they're not Israelites, there was no return, and there is no third temple prophecy in the Bible, and all of that is just Zionist make-believe. But because they have so much money and control of media and history books and politics, etc., they can make good on their threats and promises, which is what they did. That morning, and we're talking again about November 2nd, 1917, the newspapers reported, incorrectly it transpired, that Austro-German forces had captured 60,000 Italian Allied prisoners. Also reported was heavy artillery fire on the Western Front at Flanders, near German-occupied Belgium. And here's a really nice photo of some trucks and some horse-drawn wagons. In Russia, where Tsar Nicholas II had been overthrown in March, the government of the liberal Alexander Kerensky had just done well in local elections. But the country's resolve to stay in the war was shattered, 
Within one week on November 7th, the Bolsheviks or communists, who were of course Jews, led by Vladimir Lenin, would overthrow Kerensky, who was also a Jew, by the way, and Russia would pull out of the war. Okay? So in the middle of the war, the world's Jews, who were pro-German and anti-Russian, because Russia was controlled by the Tsar, uh, turned against Germany with a vengeance, because now Germany stood in the way of the Jews possessing Palestine. See how quickly the bedfellows can change? <laughs> I mean, the bed was, it wasn't even cold from the bodies of the Russians when the Germans became the, the, the big enemy of world Jewry. And the Jews acted accordingly. I mean, the, the Jews snapped to the Zionist uh, dragon. They will snap to the Zionist dragon without asking any questions. There might be a Jew here or there who might object because his business might be disrupted with such a, sw a swift and sudden change. But nevertheless, the Zionists will guarantee that Jews' losses, if necessary, because the, they realize that Jews always stick together and certain Jews who are at the bottom of the echelon will have to make sacrifices but those sacrifices will usually be covered by the richest Jews. This is the way it works. The war had devastated Britain. Nevertheless, the British Empire would fight on for another full year until November 11, 1918, when the Central Powers capitulated. By then, well over 700,000 British troops from every stratum of society had been killed in the war. Can you believe that, folks? 700,000 British troops had been killed in World War I, all for the glory of Zionism. That's all it was for, folks. There was nothing, Democracy was not increased by World War I. Far from it. Because, uh, first of all, the British Empire is not a democracy. It's a constitutional uh, monarchy. I guess that's the right word, parliamentary monarchy. And uh, so was Russia at the time. And they got communism, not democracy. And Germany didn't get democracy either. So nobody got democracy. But didn't Wilson say we have to make the world safer democracy? What democracy, please? Where, where and when was this democracy created? by World War One. Also on that Friday morning in November, the newspapers reported that Beersheba, a desert town in the Ottoman-controlled Palestine, had been captured by British forces. The British army headquartered in Egypt had already taken control of Palestine's Gaza coastal strip. But one piece of momentous news came too late to make it into the morning newspapers that day. British Foreign Secretary Arthur James Balfour 1848 to 1930, conservative member of a wartime coalition government led by Liberal Party Prime Minister David Lloyd George, had written to Lyon and Walter Rothschild, 1880, or 1868 to 1937, a leader of the Jewish community. The letter, now known as the Balfour Declaration, read, so again, the author is confirming it. Very, very few people knew about this. Certainly neither, neither the liberals or conservatives knew about it. 
there was a secret deal between the Zionists and the cabinet. And it reads as follows. Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's government the following declaration of sympathy with the Jewish Zionist aspirations which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. Where was the democratic discussion of this proposal, folks? Where was the democratic discussion of this proposal? Quote, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. They didn't call themselves Israel at this point. Remember, I have reported on many occasions that it was a last-minute decision by the Zionists to refer to their newly found pseudo-country as Israel. They were going to call it Judea until the day before its actual inauguration in 1948. They had fully intended to call it Judea, but changed their minds at the last minute, the better to fool us with, right? Oh, man, we better call ourselves Israel because we're supposed to be Israel. We're supposed to be God's chosen people, not Judeans. And they almost blew it. The last, maybe the devil whispered in David Ben-Gurion's ear, said, hey, wait a minute, you're making a big mistake here. You have to assert your, uh, your identity with Israel Otherwise, people will wonder, what the hell are you guys doing? You're just Jews taking over a country that have no business taking over. By calling themselves Israel, they legitimized their false claim. All right, let's continue. But, and uh, His Majesty's government will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, namely a national home for the Jewish people, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. Well, how could Britain guarantee that? They could guarantee that the Jews might live in peace in Palestine by helping the Jews suppress and exterminate the Palestinian people. They could certainly do that. But that would violate the terms of the agreement, namely that nothing should be done to prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine. As a matter of fact, the British government did try very hard to prevent their rights from being trampled upon. But Jewish terrorist groups like Irgun destroyed any possibility of that happening because these Jewish terrorist groups also committed terrorist acts against the British occupation government, otherwise known as the British Mandate. Finally, finishing the Balfour Declaration here, I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Yours, Arthur James Balfour. All right, so obviously the Rothschilds had uh, probably already informed the Zionist Federation, but this makes it official, okay? Now the Zionists, the World Zionist Congress or Federation, and by all the different names the Zionists go by, were guaranteed that the British government would support their occupation of Palestine, 
even though these people, I wonder if they even made claim to the British government that they are in fact the Israel of the Bible. I think that was just probably assumed by everybody, even though not clearly stated. It's certainly not stated in the Balfour Declaration. So, one week later, on November 9, 1917, a terse dispatch on the Declaration headlined, quote, Britain Favors Zionism, appeared in the New York Times. The newspaper and its German-Jewish owners were unsympathetic to the Zionist cause. Now, that's interesting. Citing Balfour's letter, the New York newspaper referred to a Jewish Chronicle commentary that spoke of an end to Jewish exile. In Britain, now which exile are they talking about? The exile committed uh, by Yahweh against Cain in the garden? <laughs> that 6,000 years of exile? Or when the Romans kicked the Jews out of Palestine in 70 AD? <laughs> Take your pick. In Britain, the Daily Express, then owned by Lord Beaverbrook, ran the story also on November 9th under the more expansive headline, quote, A State for the Jews. I'm sorry, we're having uh, issues with choppy sound on Telegram. I'll have to see if I can do something about that later. Anyway, and the same November 9, 1917, the Times of London headlined its brief report, quote, Palestine for the Jews, official sympathy, unquote. So this made headlines in major newspapers around the world, but not a word has been said about this ever since. That's the, this is the way the Jews handle the news all the time. Like uh, when we demonstrated against the murderers of Shannon Christian and Christopher Newsom in Lexington, Tennessee, or rather Knoxville, Tennessee. It made local headlines, but there was not one word of coverage in the national media. Why? Because the Jews were supporting those black thugs and murderers against those two white Christian people that were murdered by these black thugs. And this this has been the case of global Jewish reporting Ever since, they may report the facts locally and very briefly, but then the matter is dropped because they don't want people discussing the matter henceforth. Okay. Among the other newspapers that carried the story were what? The Daily Chronicle, which opined that, quote, one has to go back to Cyrus for a parallel, unquote. Referring to Babylon Cyrus the Great, who had hallowed the Jews to return to Palestine circa 458 B.C. Of course, this was the tribe and house of Judah, not Jews. Okay, so the assumption by the Daily Chronicle is the Jews are in fact Judah, which they're not. Okay, referring back to 458 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, a previous ruler of Babylon, had expelled the Jews and destroyed, no, the Judahites and destroyed their temple in 586 B.C. In lauding the declaration, the Chronicle said it would be would bolster the British Empire's hold on the strategic Suez Canal. Okay, so there's another reason why the British would support Zionism. 
The Irish Times, quote, it would be a great gain that the Jews become a nation and not a hyphenation, whatever that means. Hyphenation, uh, hyphenated people, I guess he means, like uh, British Jews or Jewish Americans, Jewish Brits, Jewish Germans, Jewish Swedes, etc., with a hyphen. Maybe that's what he means. The globe, or like African-American, is a hyphenation. It is indeed a victory for the Jews, says the globe, but equally a British triumph. No, it wasn't. It was a disaster, and this disaster would manifest itself over time greatly and more greatly, especially since the Jews involved the British people in yet another disastrous war called World War II, which bankrupted the British Empire yet again, and the British Empire has never really recovered from that. And, of course, the invasion of non-whites into Britain has also been financed by the perfidious Jew, and Britain is suffering under... This is World War III, folks. World War III is actually a ethnic invasion of white, Christian, Caucasian, Israel nations by the Jews. That's what World War III is. And, of course, uh, COVID is just uh, one facet of this war against our people. Manchester Guardian, quote, this extraordinary people, yeah, they are extraordinary in the extreme, extremely evil, extraordinarily evil. The Scotsman, quote, next year in Jerusalem, unquote. Well, it didn't happen quite that fast. But I have a feeling that virtually all of these newspapers were controlled by Jews, if not owned outright by Jews, and had a lot of Jewish editors. Extreme sympathy for the Jews and no sympathy for the Palestinians. Okay, so, but the world is being Palestinianized as we speak. All the white countries in the world are being Palestinianized at this very moment. And nobody of any import is doing anything about it. Although, I have to say, that uh, the white people are in rebellion against the, how should I put this, the uh, after effects, the visible effects of Zionist occupation in America, namely the race war that's been happening and the immigration war that's been happening, the corruption of our politics and judges and uh, uh, religious leaders, all of these things. These are just the... uh, What's the other term, the military term? Collateral damage. These things are just a collateral damage that this war by the Jews against the white race are manifesting. So let's get back now to the Ottoman Empire. First, though, there was the matter of completing the liberation of Palestine from the crumbling Ottoman Empire. And I know for a fact that uh, we did this on a one-to-one show, oh, this had to be six or seven years ago on a Saturday afternoon, about how the Jews tried to persuade and then bribe the Ottoman Empire into letting go of Palestine and turning it over to the Jews. But the Sultan at that time said, well, it's not mine to give. (laughs) It belongs to the Palestinian people. Uh, Excuse us for occupying it at the present time. But no, we can't give it to you. It doesn't belong to us. And so they were rejected. The Jews were rejected 
by the Sultan. How dare he? How dare he? As soon as he did that, he sealed his doom. Not having any idea how powerful the Jewish lobby is the world over. No idea whatsoever. Okay. So, backstory: Palestine and Arabia. So, it's obvious we're not going to get done with this subject today. We'll have to, this is part one then of the story, uh, the background story of Palestine, Jews versus Arabs, and actually Jews versus the rest of the world. That's because that's it's become that now. Toward the end of January and beginning of February 1915, an Ottoman attempt to capture the strategic Suez Canal in British-controlled Egypt had been pushed back by the British Army in a key attack now known as the Battle of the Suez Canal. As they contemplated the inevitable post-war colonial competition with France and other powers, British strategists, among them T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, had sought with dubious results beyond the Arabian Peninsula to mobilize Arab chieftains in the Allied war against the Ottoman Turks. So, from the previous article, I think we can infer that the British Empire was manipulating the Arabs into this conflict, uh, maybe getting them to fight on behalf of the British Empire on the false pretenses that the the Arabs would be liberated, the Palestinian Arabs would be liberated after the conflict. So, but, you know, would the British do such a horrible thing? <laughs> yeah, sure they would. So this was, uh, this agreement was made in bad faith. There's no doubt about it. And this is what happens when you deal with countries that are ruled by Jews from behind the scenes. Thus, in talks between the British High Commissioner in Egypt, Sir Henry McMahon, and Hussein bin Ali, the Hashemite ruler who had declared himself Sharif of Mecca, Britain promised on October 24, 1915, to back Arab independence in Arabia. Okay? This is the McMahon Hussein Agreement. A little known agreement in history because the British are not proud of what they, how they handled this. Okay? <laughs> the Jews are very proud of how this was handled, but the British, it's just nothing but a gigantic embarrassment to them. The Arab revolt started in June 1916 with attacks on Ottoman garrisons in Arabia. It should be noted that at the post-World War I Paris Peace Conference in 1919, and of course this Paris Peace Conference became the first world government, the so-called League of Nations, which was, this whole Paris Peace Conference was a totally Jewish affair. The Zionists had their own legation. All of the legations of the Western powers had Jewish advisors, if not Jewish representatives representing those countries. And so the League of Nations was a 100% Jewish operation. So was the Paris Peace Conference in 1919. Hussein and his son Faisal did not so much as suggest that McMahon had promised Palestine for the Arabs. Well, maybe he had been advised not to, (laughs) right? Uh, But he did. They did. Lawrence of Arabia would not have agreed to fight alongside with the Arabs had he not expected this agreement to be upheld. 
McMahon himself wrote in the Times of 1937, quote, I feel it my duty to state, and I do so definitely and emphatically, that it was not intended by me in giving this pledge to King Hussein to include Palestine in the area in which Arab independence was promised. Well, it was made to Arabs in general, right? It was made to Arabs in general. And where were they living? They were living in Palestine. But I have a feeling that McMahon is not telling the truth here. I feel he is hedging what he actually agreed to for fear of offending the Jews and being eliminated by the Zionists just as T.E. Lawrence was eliminated by the Zionists later. I had also every reason to believe at the time that the fact that Palestine was not included in my pledge was well understood by King Hussein. I would love to get King Hussein's side of this argument. It's clear to me that T.E. Lawrence understood that Palestine would revert to the Arabs after World War I, or at least after the Turks were ejected. In May 1916, Sir Mark Sykes of Britain and Francois-Georges Picot of France had, without informing either the Zionists or the Arabs, oh, here we go, another secret deal, broadly arranged how the powers would divide the Mideast once Ottoman Turkey was defeated. Much of Palestine was to come under international control, which means Jewish control, Zionist control, The secret Sykes-Picot agreement, also approved in principle by Tsarist Russia, boy, if that's true, it's really dumb of the the Tsarist to agree to that, would later be made public by Lenin's Russia. When they learned of the accord, both Zionists and Arabs were dismayed. Well, no, that can't be true. Arabs were certainly dismayed, but not the Zionists. Here, here, this article is covering Zionist butt here. There's absolutely no doubt that the Zionists were after Palestine and were doing everything they possibly could by wrecking virtually the entire world to get it. Okay? There were no Zionists who were disappointed by this uh, agreement. Okay? The, the Zionists could all be happy, happy, joy, joy. Because the Zionists were in control of this whole scenario. I, I don't think this author is being, uh, he's either ignorant of Zionist control or he's you know, f- hedging or fudging the facts. Anyway, nation-state sovereignty, it should be noted, was a construct of Western international law. And it was one of the points of Woodrow Wilson at the Paris Peace Conference And nobody gave a damn about it, right? They proceeded to carve up new nations out of the defeated territories. Both in Arabia and in Europe, don't you know? This was a Zionist bloodbath. Zionist sharks feeding on other nations. Ottoman Turkey claimed to be a Muslim caliphate. The sultan was its supreme leader, his political power legitimized by religion. 
The loyalty of ordinary Arabs, Turks, Persians, Berbers, and Kurds was first and foremost to their immediate family and then to clan and tribe, not to the Ottoman Turks. All right? The Ottomans had ruled over the Middle East since 1299. By the way, that was the second woe of the Book of Revelation when the Arabs, the Ar- sorry, the Turks, administered their rule over the you know, the entire Western Hemisphere at that time, taking over from the Arab Muslims. So that was the first woe. The first woe began around 600 A.D. when the Arab Muslims uh, began their war of aggression toward the West. And then the Turks had their turn, another Muslim invasion of, of the West. And then the third woe is when the the West lost its power to the Jews, to the Jewish banksters. So here the Arab states of the uh, and the uh, Turkish states uh, were defeated, at least temporarily, by the Western powers. But because the Jews were in total control of the war and the direction it would take, the third woe was the decline and fall of the Holy Roman Empire, the so-called Second Reich. Because, number one, the Tsar of Russia was deposed and murdered by the Jews, and Kaiser Wilhelm II was uh, had to flee Germany because of a communist insurrection there, which was eventually put down by the, by the German uh, army, by German army veterans, okay? And for some reason, Kaiser Wilhelm never returned, leaving the country leaderless, really. So the third woe was the abdication and destruction of Western Christian civilization. The The rule of the, the Second Reich. That that was the Third Woe. Now we're still living in the Third Woe, which the Jews in the 20th century referred to as the Jewish century, don't you know? Because so many of their dreams against Western civilization, against Christian civilization, against the white race have materialized since then. They, they couldn't be happier with the way the 20th century worked out for them and the way things are working out for them now. So this is, our, our, we are in the midst of the third woe, folks. This is the third woe. Let's continue. Okay, so we have, uh, yeah, so Berbers, Kurds, etc. The Ottomans had ruled over the Middle East since 1299, the second woe. And from the Maghreb, or North Africa, to the Mashriq, the Arab world east of Egypt, there were no sovereign Arab states. The first glimmers of Arab nationalism in opposition to the Ottoman Turks might be traceable to the Negib Azuri, 1870-1916, a Lebanese Maronite Christian who, writing in Paris in 1905, proposed the creation of a pan-Arab state rooted in race and language 
to stretch from the Tigris and Euphrates to the Suez and from the Mediterranean to the Arabian Sea. Now, wait a minute. This would be in direct opposition to Zionist aspirations, would it not? Whoa, that's the first I've heard of this. That is really interesting. So let me repeat this. A pan-Arab state. What did he call it? Well, the guy was a Lebanese Maronite, M-A-R-O-N-I-T-E, Christian, proposed a pan-Arab state rooted in race and language to stretch from the Tigris and Euphrates to the Suez and from the Mediterranean to the Arabian Sea. Well, it's obvious that the Rothschilds with their vast spy network, and of course this being in Paris, one of the headquarters of the Rothschild bankers, would have known about this proposition when, when it was first introduced in 1905 and probably earlier. So the Zionists had to act fast to prevent such a thing from happening. Let's continue. Azuri would have excluded Egypt from his pan-Arab state because he wrote, quote, The Egyptians do not belong to the Arab race. They are of the African Berber family, and the language which they spoke before Islam bears no similarity to Arabic. What a racist. What a down-home racist. Anyway, Britain captures Palestine. This is one of the great, again, this is part of the third woe, folks. Britain captured Palestine on behalf of the Jews. The third woe is the destruction of Western Christian civilization and its capture by the international Jew. That is the third woe. And this section, Britain captures Palestine. On December 11, 1917, General Edmund Allenby demonstratively entered Jerusalem's old city on foot through the Jaffa Gate, signifying the capture of the city. In London, Prime Minister David Lord George, sorry, <laughs> Lloyd George, heralded the city's capture as, quote, a Christmas present for the British people. How about a Christmas present for the Jewish people? Happy horny cow. The rest of Palestine and the Mideast followed in due course. In Iraq, Baghdad fell to British forces in March 1918. By September, October 1918, the Ottomans had been utterly defeated and driven back to Anatolia, today's Turkey. The Palestine that the British took charge of was parched and terribly neglected. Jerusalem had few pavements, no sewer system, and no electricity. Well, I'm sure the Arabs could care less about that as long as the Turks are gone. They can rebuild that themselves. Wartime blockades had contributed to food shortages. Locusts had ruined what little could be grown. Not much seemed to have changed since the American writer Mark Twain in 1835 to 1910 had visited in 1867 and described the country as a, quote, hopeless, dreary, heartbroken land. Guess what, folks? It is still the same hopeless, dreary, heartbroken land today because it has never ceased to be occupied by somebody or other. Now, of course, General Allenby being a Brit and therefore a Christian Israelite, 
accepted Jerusalem on behalf of true Israel. And the British mandate gave it to Israel, to true Israel, to us, Caucasian Israel. But because of Jewish terrorism against the British in Palestine, the British just were fed up and washed their hands of the situation, much like Pontius Pilate washed his hands of the situation when the Jews wanted to execute Christ. Very similar situation. And guess who won? The Jews in both cases. Quote, Zion was another name for Jerusalem, but Judaism is not another name for Mosaism or biblical law. It was first used in the Bible in the second book of Samuel 4.7. Quote, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. The same is the city of David. Now, uh, I believe uh, the city of David is not the same as Jerusalem. I think the city of David is actually David's personal stronghold. I'll have to double check that. I can investigate that before next next week's episode. This is going to be for sure a two-part episode. But it's absolutely crucial that people realize that what's going on in Palestine is nothing but Zionist deceit, Luciferian deceit of people, of all people of the world, including the lesser brethren of the Jews who blindly follow the Zionist leadership of their people to their own detriment because many of these Jews have been mercilessly sacrificed as pawns in the game of Zionism. Little do do these little Jews realize, although some of them have awakened to the situation and have spoken out about it. Anyway, so with with that said, and there's so much more to tell here, we're going to start next week with this subheading called Political Zionism political Zionism has been the background. It's also religious Zionism because it is based on Judaism. Zionism is a Jewish thrust. It's not merely political. It's religious. It's the Luciferian synagogue of Satan, which they call Zionism. It is both a religious and political movement because Judaism has always been religious and political. Just ask Jesus Christ about that. And ask the Palestinians about that. The only question I have is, when will our people wake up to the truth of how evil these Jews really are and how evil their religion really is? And that it's not the religion of the Bible and the fact that the Jews are not the Israel of the Bible. These are things that must obtain in this world if there is ever any peace. Otherwise, we are doomed to live in subservience to the perfidious Jew until the judgment day. At least we Christians, we Christian Israelites, have that in our in our hip pocket or in our deck of cards, that ace of spades, which is going to trump everything the Jews have ever done, the condemnation of Edom, which is repeated time and again in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. So, folks... Gird yourselves for a rough ride between now and then. It's not going to get any easier. And the civil wars around the world will escalate. And, of course, the Jews will do everything in their power 
to avoid being exposed for who and what they really are, not short of starting World War III if they have to, and they will. The Samson option, which is nuclear war. If they have to, they will. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. Take care, everybody. Free people will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. All right. So I'm going to disconnect from Eurofolk Radio. And...